Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the tuesday edition of the georgine rice show seven minutes after four o'clock glad to have you with us on this tuesday afternoon chris williams is engineering today clark uh, hilton still out on vacation who who would need a vacation from the Georgine Rice Show Engineering. I mean, isn't that sort of a vacation in and of itself? Chris is nodding dutifully, but insincerely, I must uh, I must admit. <laughs> anyway, James Blind is producing, although he's been um, running around the office like a chicken with its head. Well, I won't say that because that's a very violent image with its head, with a headache. We'll put it that <laughs> He's preparing for Fish Fest. He sort of oversees all of the music and the uh uh, the musicians who are coming and going, and so this is a very busy week for him. So he's been here, but he's been all about the music this week. And if you're planning on being a part of Fish Fest and you see James Blend, know that he has a lot to do with what happens there. And you might want to say, hey, great job, Jimmy. Call him Jimmy if you really want to get to him. I'm allowed to because I'm I'm his elder, uh, but I can tell it. It bugs him, which is why I pretty much call him that on a daily basis. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us today. Um I have to admit, I sat back at my desk today and I thought, you know what? Let's just go fishing. I tried to talk Chris into it. He wouldn't go for it. He's a responsible husband and father. He's a good employee, so he wouldn't go for it. But, uh, you know, there are days you just don't want to talk about it. And this is one of those days. I just We're straining at gnats as a nation. Meanwhile, um, you know, things are falling apart. Nobody wants to talk about the more serious issues behind the recent events. And it's uh, it's a painful thing to watch because there are consequences to our distraction that's carefully orchestrated, it seems to me, by the media that's trying to uh, communicate a narrative that tells a story, but it doesn't tell the story. It, it eliminates elements that need to be uh, dis- discussed, the hard questions that are not being addressed. So it's frustrating to me. And because I sit at my desk and I listen to them and watch them all day long, I wouldn't recommend you do it. I do it so you don't have to and try to interpret some of it. I'm not suggesting you abdicate uh, your responsibility to know what's going on in the world. But sitting over a long period of of time, hour after hour, I see the stories when they're first announced, when they're breaking news. I hear how they're being developed. I hear how they're spun, what's left out, what's included. And it's very frustrating to see the narrative that – um, it seems to me is largely manipulated so that your attention is drawn to certain things to the exclusion of other things that when taken together are a much larger, more important story. So um, again, it's a frustrating part of my job. I do it every day, but I have to admit, Chris had to come back to my office at about five minutes after and remind me, you know, it's, it's time to go do the show because I was ready to go fishing. I had the pole. I was willing to dig for worms, although digging in this hard, dry ground might have been a challenge. But I was willing to do that if only Chris had said he would go with me. But here we are, and uh, today on the program we're going to uh, press on some of the, uh, the important issues of the day and try to cover them in the limited time that we have uh, to do that and challenge you to think perhaps about some other aspects 
of uh, those headline stories. We're also going to talk with Albert Shi. He is the author of Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope. Um, reading through that book today in preparation for the uh, the interview, that was a, a very difficult and painful thing. He does an excellent job as uh, he describes himself as a suicide survivor, not someone who attempted suicide, but one who is left behind when, in his case, his father ended his own life. And the book is written for those who are trying to um, make their way through um, a tragic event like that, and he does a beautiful job. We'll talk with him about the book uh, when he joins us later this hour. And then we'll wind our way through some of the headline news stories as well and try to do as good a job as we can in the limited time that we have to encourage you to think more deeply than the headlines. Um, and again, uh, as I hear how stories are covered, and I'm, of course, reading through stories throughout the day as well, I'm struck by... Um, the fact that we have the 24-hour news cycle, it means that with all that time that's available, we're actually getting less and less uh, insight into what's happening in the world. And it's a, an interesting phenomenon, but the focus is no longer to inform um, the public as much as it is to provide information uh, that then is translate, uh, translated into ratings, that is translated into you know revenue and a number of other things as well. So all of that said, we did learn today that North Korea has blinked. Uh, they promised to watch the, as they put it, foolish and stupid Yankees, um, but North Korea has blinked. We're going to talk a bit later in the next segment, because I've almost eaten up all of this one, that this isn't unusual for North Korea to come to the brink And then uh, when they don't get what they're looking for, and the United States has many times caved and said, look, negotiations, and we're going to give you this and this if you'll just, and they, you know, say, okay, sure, we will. They don't, and we're back at this same square one. Uh, This time around, um, it's interesting that you're not hearing Donald Trump being given credit. You are hearing Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, being credited with uh, this latest back down on the part of North Korea, whatever that means at this point. But I think it's also important to make the point that uh, Donald Trump's harsh words resonated with China. And I think a lot of what he had to say was less for the ears of the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who, by the way, hasn't been seen or heard from directly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but it was more um, uh, guided toward China, who desperately does not want, or I should say, which def- desperately does not want a war on its border because of what that will cost them. And they've made some uh, some strides in the right direction. So anyway, we'll get into all of that. But we learned that the temperature in um, Washington uh, went down just a bit, lowered just a bit in this confrontation with Pyongyang. Both sides are still talking tough. Uh, often talking past one another, but North Korea seemed to blink in the face of the the president's threats of massive retaliation for any new threat against the United States. And uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis certainly did back up what the president said, making it very clear that if you want to go down that road, it will cost you far more dearly than you might be willing to pay. Uh, In his short notice, uh, um, uh, in another of his uh, drop-ins on reporters who regularly hang out at the Pentagon, um, Uh, The defense secretary said it's game on if North Korea fires uh, missiles at Guam. So all of that together uh, at this point means that North Korea has uh, backed down. And they are saying that they're going to keep their eye, keep a watch on the the foolish and stupid Yankees. There are apparently war games that are scheduled for some uh, time in the not too distant future. And that may be a provocation in which threats will be made again. Um, But it was at least hopeful that at this point, North Korea said, well, maybe not now. 
uh, and we'll continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back. And again, later this hour, we'll talk with Albert Shi, author of Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I was mentioning before the break that North Korea has followed a, a relatively familiar playbook with the uh, Guam reversal. There are cycles of tensions that they've used actually to acquire what they uh, what they've been looking for. Uh, their climb down from this latest threat to attack Guam was the product of textbook brinksmanship from Pyongyang. Jonathan Chang, writing for The Wall Street Journal, points out that amid economic pressures from Beijing, President Trump's bellicose rhetoric, and an effort by senior U.S. officials to emphasize the need for diplomacy. But concrete progress is less certain. Pyongyang is uh, expert at rapidly escalating and de-escalating tensions. If uh, you've been paying attention over uh, any period of time, you've seen that. The next cycle could begin as early as next week when American forces begin annual joint exercises with South Korea. Uh, That's what I was uh, struggling to remember uh, earlier Uh, In the uh, previous segment, it's next week that these joint exercises take place. Well, North Korea always uh, escalates its um, rhetoric at that time, and I have no doubt that that will be the case this time around as well. North Korea's turnaround also does little to address the Trump administration's longer-term challenge, stopping the country's quest for an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reliably delivering a nuclear warhead to the U.S. mainland. Now, that's a much tougher job than... Uh, we might imagine it's one thing to have the ICBM technology to have nuclear weapons, but to be able to precisely place them where you intend is a is a difficult challenge. Now, you can also fire one and it ends up in the wrong place and you've already uh, started a conflict. But nonetheless, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, the Wall Street Journal continues that Pyongyang's exact motivations for dialing down tensions are as opaque and subject to a debate as its motivation for having threatened Guam in the first place. In addition to concerns about further escalation, they appear to have been influenced by Beijing's announcement on Monday that it would enforce new trade sanctions and diplomatic statements by senior U.S. officials. Officials in China, Japan, South Korea, and many other nations had been alarmed last week when Mr. Trump threatened to unleash fire and fury in response to threats from North Korea and declared that U.S. military solutions were locked and loaded strong language. In many ways, North Korea's announcement on Tuesday that it would uh, hold off for now on threats to surround Guam with an enveloping fire of intermediate range ballistic missiles follows a familiar pattern in their playbook. Two years ago, during another August standoff, North Korea issued a 48-hour ultimatum to South Korea to switch off loudspeakers blaring propaganda critical of North North Korean leader Kim Jong-un across the uh, militarized zone that separates the two countries following the explosion of a landmine there that maimed two South Korean soldiers. North Korea threatened to use force to stop the broadcast. South Korea ignored the deadline. Days later, North Korea expressed regret for the landmine, dismissed several senior officials, and put um, uh, inter-Korean relations uh, back on what is called... um, Uh, uh, the track of reconciliation and trust, South Korea shut off the loudspeakers. In March of last year, also during U.S.-South Korean military exercises, Pyongyang threatened to attack Seoul's presidential uh, palace unless it received an apology from then-South Korean President Park. Uh, No apology was forthcoming, and the threat never materialized. North Korea's uh, threat to Guam was consistent with its record of using strategic brinksmanship, 
to compensate for its relative weakness, says Yang Ji-Yu, a former Chinese diplomat who's taken part in multilateral talks on North Korea's nuclear program. They try to create a situation where North Korea and the United States are at the brink of war, and if you want to save the whole world, then you have to return to negotiations, he said. However, Mr. Yang said uh, Pyongyang's climb down this time came faster than expected. He gave some of the credit to for North Korea's apparent reversal to China's rapid implementation on Monday of the new United Nations sanctions banning North Korean exports of goods, including coal, iron, lead and seafood. The significance is that if China can stop major imports like these, then it can do something further. too. now the question and it's a big unanswered question is whether or not China is prepared Uh, to do just that. Well, at a time when the United States uh, needs to work favorably with China to address uh, the problem of North Korea, the Trump administration, and I think rightly so, has ordered a probe of uh, China's theft of intellectual property. And this has been going on for many, many decades. Uh, To my recollection, it began in earnest during the Clinton administration and has continued uh, at pace right up until the present. Uh, But President Trump uh, ordered an investigation into Chinese theft of American intellectual property. He said in signing a memorandum for U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer that we're going to be fulfilling another campaign promise by taking firm steps to ensure that we protect the intellectual property of American companies and very importantly of American workers. Well, the directive will set the stage for an investigation into trade practices that require U.S. companies operating in China to provide intellectual property to the Chinese government. If a formal investigation is launched, it could take several years and potentially result in the imposition of economic sanctions on China. The president's action on predatory Chinese trade practices follows the failure by Beijing to rein in its communist ally, North Korea. In July, Trump tweeted, I am very disappointed in China, our foolish past leaders have allowed them to make hundreds of billions of dollars a year in trade, yet they do nothing for us with North Korea, just talk. We will no longer allow this to continue, he tweeted. China could easily solve this problem. Well, Trump on Monday said the theft of intellectual property costs millions of U.S. jobs and billions and billions of dollars every year. For too long, this wealth has been drained from our country while Washington has done nothing, he said. They have never done anything about it, but Washington will turn a blind eye no longer. Well, the memorandum calls for the U.S. TR office to probe China's policies, practices, and actions regarding forced transfers of American technology and the theft of American intellectual property. The uh, inquiry could result in the formal 301 investigation, so-called after Section 301 of the 1974 Trade Act. Well, that law gives the president broad power, including retaliation, to punish foreign governments that violate international trade agreements or use unreasonable and discriminatory practices that restrict U.S. commerce. Well, the USTR um, must seek to negotiate a settlement with the foreign nation in the form of of compensation or elimination of the trade barrier. Uh, Trump said we will stand up to any country that unlawfully forces American companies to transfer their valuable technology as a condition of market access. We will combat the counterfeiting and piracy that destroys American jobs. We will enforce the rules of fair and reciprocal trade that form the foundation of responsible commerce, and we will protect forgotten Americans who have been left behind by a global trade system that has failed to look, and I mean look, out for their interests. 
They have not been looked out for at all. Well, Trump said Lighthizer was empowered to consider all available options in dealing with the problem. We will safeguard the copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, and other intellectual property that is so vital to our security and to our prosperity. Trump then said, and this is just the beginning. I want to tell you that this is just the beginning. Well, he was immediately criticized for uh, the timing of this announcement, given the fact that the United States uh, needs China to reign in North Korea. But the president decided in the interest of the American people and in uh, in order to be consistent with promises made while campaigning, he would do just that right now. We'll follow the story. Well, Iran is lashing out at talks, uh, talk rather, of new sanctions, saying it could abandon the nuclear deal within hours. You know, the nuclear deal that really did us no good. Hassan Rouhani, uh, Rouhani rather, the president of Iran, said Tuesday that Tehran could abandon the 2015 nuclear deal within hours if new sanctions from the U.S. are imposed. He claimed that the new sanctions would be a breach of the agreement made between Iran and other countries, including the U.S. and China. The president claimed, the president of Iran, claimed that his country is capable of starting its nuclear program within hours. Many believe they've never stopped and quickly bring it to even more advanced levels than in 2015 when Iran signed the nuclear deal with world powers. Now, one of the reasons he's claiming that that's possible, that in 2017, uh, he could begin that nuclear program in advance of where it ended in 2015, many believe is because they never stopped advancing that program. He went on to say if America wants uh, to uh, to go back to the experience of imposing sanctions, Iran would certainly return in the short term, not a week or a month, but within hours to conditions more advanced than before the start of negotiations. Uh, in late July, the U.S. Treasury imposed new sanctions on six Iranian firms for having a hand in the development of a ballistic missile program after Tehran launched a rocket capable of putting a satellite into orbit. Uh, earlier this month, President Trump, he signed into law new sanctions on Iran, Russia and North Korea, which passed by Congress. The sanctions also targeted Iran's missile program as well as human rights abuses. The U.S. imposed unilateral sanctions after saying that the ballistic missile test violated a U.N. resolution, not the uh, the uh, nuclear agreement, but a U.N. resolution which endorsed the uh, nuclear deal and called upon Tehran not to undertake activities related to ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Iran has denied that their missile development violates the sanctions because they are not designed to carry nukes. Uh, So that disagreement continues. The sanctions have been signed off by the president and we'll see what happens in the next um, in the next short while uh, with regard to uh, uh, these sanctions being imposed and Iran returning or resuming at least publicly uh, their nuclear program. Now, in just a a couple of minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Albert Shi. He is the author of Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers and Hope. Uh, He has a Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's senior editor of four InterVarsity Press books at InterVarsity Press. He is also the author of Singles at the Crossroads and the Suburban Christian. He and his wife, Ellen, they have two sons. They live in western uh, suburbs of Chicago. We'll talk about uh, his experience and this resource that he hopes will help others who face the very difficult challenge of life after the suicide of a loved one. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, for anyone who's lost a loved one to suicide, they experience tremendous shock and trauma. What follows is a confusing mix of emotions, anger, guilt, grief, and despair. 
Suicide raises heart-rending questions. Why did it happen? Why didn't we see it coming? Could we have done anything to prevent it? How can we go on? Well, many also wonder if those who choose suicide are doomed to an eternity separated from God and their loved ones. Some may even start asking whether life is worth living at all. Well, after his father's death, my next guest wrestled with the intense emotion and theological questions surrounding suicide. And while acknowledging that there are no easy answers, he draws on the resources of the Christian faith to point suicide survivors to the God who offers comfort in our grief and hope for the future. For those who have lost a loved one to suicide and for their counselors and pastors, this book is an essential companion for the journey toward healing. It incorporates, um, it is, I should say, uh, re- it is re- uh, revised edition. It incorporates updated statistics and now includes a discussion guide for suicide survivor groups as well. My guest is Dr. Albert Shee, his senior editor for InterVarsity Press Books at InterVarsity Press, where he acquires and develops books in such areas as culture, discipleship, church, ministry, and mission. He earned his Ph.D. in educational studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is an author of Single at the Cross Roads, Grieving a Suicide in the Suburban Christian. He's been a writer and columnist for Christianity Today and served as senior warden on the vestry of uh, the Church of the Savior in Wheaton, Illinois. He and his wife, Ellen, have two sons. They live in western, uh, the western suburbs of Chicago. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was a difficult book to read, and I imagine it was uh, painful to write. But your primary audience is uh, those who have struggled with uh, surviving the suicide of a loved one. That's right. Every year in the United States, there are about 42,000 suicides that take place. And each one leaves behind, on average, six to ten immediate survivors, loved ones, close friends and family, spouses, parents, children. That's hundreds of thousands of people every year that are going through this kind of grief. So although you might feel alone in the midst of your particular experience, there are many who share that, uh, that grief um, that you may not be aware of. That's right. And the first thing that people need to know is that you are not alone in this experience, that others have gone through this uh, and they have found support and help and survived the other side. You begin um, your first chapter, When Suicide Strikes, with a quote from Anne Grace Shinen uh, that says, Suicide doesn't end pain. It only lays it on the broken shoulders of the survivors. Uh, You begin by telling in that chapter um, the story of your father's suicide, uh, how you and your wife were planning on traveling back to your hometown for a wedding and to visit your parents, received a phone call early that morning uh, to be told what was a complete surprise to you. Tell our listeners a little bit about your experience and how you heard about your father's suicide. My father was 58 years old. He was an electrical engineer and a PhD, a brilliant man, but he had experienced a stroke a few months prior. And while he survived the stroke, uh, it left his left side of his body debilitated. And so he was in rehab and making recovery. But one of the side effects of the stroke was that he spun into a clinical depression. He lost all sight of um, all perspective. He lost sense of hope. And he eventually thought that the medical bills were bankrupting us. And that wasn't the case. We had good health insurance. But, but he thought that he was becoming a burden on the family. And so he thought that he couldn't go on. So one night he told my mother that he didn't want to be disturbed, and he took his own life. And so we got the phone call, 
and it was a devastating experience. Uh, there's just no, there's no way that your soul is prepared for that kind of a, of mm-hmm. a shock. It is the kind of experience that divides your life into before and after, and you are never the same. You um, write about the fact that you heard about your father's suicide through a phone call, initially from your mother, and then a further explanation from a, a neighbor. People um, often witness the suicide. They uh, discover the, the body. Talk a, a bit about how people experience that initial um, understanding that a, a loved one has ended their life and how that impacts uh, the individual. The, the shock of discovery is can be the kind of trauma on par with a wartime experience. Uh, Psychologists say that uh, the shock of a suicide, the trauma of a suicide, is like uh, soldiers surviving a war. And what's going on in this particular kind of grief is what counselors call complicated grief or complicated bereavement. That on the one hand, we're grieving the loss of our loved one like any other death. But on the other hand, there's this other additional trauma that strikes us with the force of that soldiers experience in war when they have PTSD. It's, it's a trauma that is inflicted by the act of the violence of the suicide, and it's similar to a terrorist attack or a murder. And so we're actually dealing with two realities, grief, which is normal, and trauma, which is not. And that hits us with a one-two punch. It's a complicated grief. Mm. You uh, write about phoning your employer, phoning friends, your church. There was a a group of people, there was a community that was upholding you in prayer as you made your way back home to be with your mother and to to just grieve the, the loss of your father. Many people feel completely isolated. What do you do when you're in the initial stages of shock and what do you advise people uh, that they need to be aware of that will help them uh, if they don't have that kind of community support that you write about? Well, shock is entirely normal in situations like this. And, and sometimes our bodies uh, shut down. We shut down emotionally. Uh, that's actually a defense mechanism that our bodies uh, buffer us with. It's uh, to shield us from the full force of the pain and the grief. Uh, different people respond differently. Some maybe wailing and crying in tears. Others may go numb, and that was more my experience. And so we very much need to rely on friends and family to help us through those initial days. My, I, was, I depended on my wife to help uh, walk through some of the, the um, immediacy of those first few days. If, if people don't have friends, family, community around them, that, that, that is already a difficult situation made even uh, you may feel even more isolated and alone so this is a role for the church if there are churches that can come alongside those who are in the immediacy of grief and help with some of the practical details uh, that can be a significant ministry you write that the chapters in the first part of your book deal more directly with the immediate grief experience the second part answers the uh, the haunting questions that suicide presents and then the third section offers reflection on living one's life following a suicide. Talk a little bit about the structure of your book and to whom you think it is is directed. Well, the immediate audience is anyone who has lost a loved one to uh, suicide. And the first part walks through that emotional experience and helps them understand what they can expect. There's this emotional whirlwind, this turmoil of dealing with the conflicting emotions um, that 
grievers have, we feel, on the one hand, grief and loss and sadness, but at the same time, we may be very angry and conflicted. And if it had been a murder, we could rage against the murderer and grieve our loved one. But in this case, the murderer is our loved one. And so we are conflicted. We are divided because we rage against them and we grieve them and mourn them at the same time. And also, we are uh, we often may experience uh, survivor's guilt. Uh, we may feel like it was our fault, that we should have seen this coming. Could we have done something to prevent this? My mother is a nurse. Um, and so she's, she was acting as my father's caregiver, and she actually did all the right things. She saw the signs of depression. Uh, she noticed when he was talking about possibly ending his life. And so he, she got weapons out of the house. She took him to the doctor for observation. So she did all the right things. But even so, she was unable to prevent the suicide. And so as a caregiver, as a nurse, she felt survivor's guilt uh, that she should have done something to prevent it. When you um, were dealing with life after your father's suicide, um, where did you begin to process? Um, you, you write that some of the things that you read early in your own grieving made little sense initially, but over time began to make uh, more sense. Where did you begin to start processing uh, this experience and, and trying to make sense of and move forward? Well, I am grateful that Scripture gives us permission to grieve. Uh, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus himself wept at the death of Lazarus. So grief is not something to be denied. It is something that is expected and normal. Uh, And so I'm glad that our God gives us permission to grieve. And in in the book of Psalms, we have Psalms of Lament. And the Psalms of Lament were a, a source of Uh, comfort and help for me in that these psalms are written with a particular structure in mind. Um, Grief by its very nature is a a rather nebulous, formless kind of thing. We feel like we're in a fog. We feel like we're going around in circles. But the psalms of lament give us structure to our grief. It orders it. In some ways, it's what we would call today processing. So these psalms open with a cry to God, and we vent our pain and all of our emotional rawness. And Lord, God, how long, O Lord? Why have you forsaken me? Why has this happened? And we express our pain. Uh, the, The world is not the way it ought to be. We have lost our loved one in this horrible way. And we direct that pain and anguish to God. And that's directing it in the right place. God can handle it. Um, But in the middle of the psalm, halfway, there is usually this pivot, and, but yet I will remember you, but yet I place my trust in you, but yet I have hope in you, because as we express our grief to God, we are reminded of God's presence with us. He has been present with us in the past, He has been faithful, He has acted in history on our behalf, and He can be counted on to be trusted in the future. And so... As we work through this pain, as we work through this lament, we conclude these psalms of lament with an expression of hope and confidence that God has heard our cry, even in the midst of this horrible pain, and he will respond and act. We're talking with Albert Shee. He is the author of Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking with uh, Albert Shee. Uh, Dr. Albert Shee is the author of Grieving a Suicide, A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope. In addition to dealing with uh, what an individual does when suicide strikes and they are surviving the fallout, uh, your second uh, part uh, deals with the lingering questions. Why did this happen? And I think one of the things, particularly for a, a Christian listening audience, is suicide the unforgivable sin? I think that haunts the believer perhaps more than any other question surrounding uh, the suicide of a loved one. And you address this from a biblical point of view. What uh, what can you offer listeners who perhaps still today wonder that question about someone that they have lost? Yeah, some traditions uh, consider suicide the kind of sin that automatically condemns you to hell because you can't ask for forgiveness after you commit the sin. Uh, but that's a, something of a transactional view of sin and forgiveness. And really, for Christians that believe that if you're walking with God, you've been forgiven of sins once and for all, then that uh, you don't necessarily need to be consciously repenting of every sin as you go through life. We walk in relationship with God. And so Scripture does not actually condemn uh, suicide per se. It's, it always shows it negatively. There's, there are seven suicides in Scripture, from uh, King Saul to Judas, and they're always shown as the tragic result of a life gone wrong. Uh, it is never God's plan for someone to go to, to suicide. Um, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And so I like to think of suicide in terms of tragedy. If you think like a Shakespearean tragedy or a Greek tragedy, the protagonist, the tragic hero, is someone who is undone by their own fatal flaw. And that is often the case in our friends and loved ones when they are undone by any number of factors. There are always multiple factors in a suicide. It may be depression, it may may be mental illness, it may be a snap decision in a bad situation. But they have done something that is, is not the way God had intended. But on the one hand, we see that that is wrong. On the other hand, we can have compassion on them and empathy for them in that they, they made a, a wrong decision. And, and had they been in a better frame of mind, had they not been suffering from depression or mental illness, they may not have made that choice. You also address the question, where was God when it, when it happened or when it hurts? And again, this is a question that many struggle with. Why didn't God prevent this from happening? Or uh, where is he now as I'm hurting or my loved one hurt prior to taking his or her own life? Right. And philosophers have been debating this for centuries. The short answer is that God gave us free will and that we choose, uh, he, he lets us experience the results of our decisions, even when they're wrong ones. Uh, we see that any day wh- that we choose to sin or to choose to have a, a bad habit or a bad uh, choice. So God honors our loved one's choices uh, to take their life, ultimately. But I am grateful that our God understands human suffering. He is not some philosophical, abstract God that views humanity from a distance. But for Christians... In the Christian story, Jesus became flesh. God became flesh in Jesus. He experienced this human life and all of its pain and suffering, and even to the point of dying on a cross. So our God is the man of sorrows. He is the suffering servant. He joined us in human suffering, and so he weeps with us when 
we lose a loved one, as he did at the tomb of Lazarus. But that's not all. The the death is not the end of the story. And for Christians, the paradox is that out of death comes new life. After the crucifixion comes resurrection. And so in Jesus, we have hope that that death is not the end of the story. In the third part of your book, you write about life after suicide, and that's probably the most difficult thing to imagine for those um, who are keenly in the midst of of that grief. Uh, But you write about the spirituality of grief. Um, Describe what you mean by that and how God can use grief in a way that strengthens and um, gives us insight and does more in and through us than we might imagine. Right. Well, it's been said that grief turns some people hard while it makes other people soft. And so as we experience grief and loss, we we recognize our limitations. We recognize our finiteness. And we realize we can't make it through this life alone and that we need to depend on a higher power. We need to depend on God. Uh, In in the story of the Gospel of Luke, uh, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, There's the story of the couple walking home after the Passover feast on the Emmaus Road, and they have lost Jesus. Jesus has died. He has, uh, and they are mourning, they are weeping, they are trying to make sense of this thing. We thought he was going to be the one to save Israel, and now he's gone. And so in their grief, as they're processing, a stranger comes alongside them on the road, and they talk with him, and he, they invite him into their home, and in the breaking of the bread at the meal, he reveals himself to be Jesus. And it's this beautiful paradox of when they feel most abandoned, when they feel like God is the farthest away from them, he's actually present. He, and God has drawn near to them. Jesus has drawn near to them in the midst of their pain and grief. You write about the fact that there are lessons in suicide and uh, again, it's it's difficult to appreciate that, perhaps if you're still in the acute stage of, of grieving um, and turmoil. But talk about the lessons of suicide. Obviously, those lessons are for those who survive the suicide of a loved one. But what can we glean from that experience um, that's useful to us or that might help us endure our own uh, life challenges? Well, one thing that we recognize is uh, our mortality. We, For many of us, Death is not very real to us until it happens. Uh, we live in a kind of a sanitized world, uh, we, and we avoid death. But the reality of a suicide makes it very immediate. And so it makes us realize we can't take this life for granted. We can't take our loved ones, our, our spouses, our children for granted. And so we learn to honor life more deeply, and we see the preciousness of all of life. Also, I think we are reminded of the necessity of hope that all of us need hope uh, in order to live. Our loved ones died because of a loss of hope for one reason or another. But for the Christian, hope is not just wishful thinking. Sometimes hope is conceived of as, oh, I hope things will get better, and that's hoping as as a verb. But for Christians, hope is a noun. Scripture talks about we have this hope. They speak of hope as a noun, that in Christ we have this hope, and it's a concrete reality, as real as a cast iron anchor. And so we anchor ourselves to that hope, because we have no hope without it. And so we're grateful for Jesus, who makes a way through the darkness, uh, give us, giving us new life and hope. Now, as I mentioned, you don't write this book from the standpoint of a 
uh, a theoretical analysis of these issues. You are a survivor of your father's uh, suicide. Describe your journey a bit and where you uh, where you stand today in the wake of that event. You you mentioned that life um, after a suicide is before and after. You are now in the after phase of that. Describe your life in that uh, in that stage. Well, I I have become much more aware of the suffering of the world. Uh, not only my father's suffering, not only people who have experienced depression or mental illness, but uh, any kinds of suffering. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that even in the midst of my own grief journey and pain, that there is a redemptive aspect to that. It's not a journey that I would wish on anybody. I, I wish this had never happened. But in light of it, I can be used by God, and all of us can be used by God to minister to others in pain. Uh, I think of Rick and Kay Warren, who mm-hmm. uh, pastors at Saddleback Church in Southern California. They lost their son, Matthew, to suicide a few years ago. He had long struggled with mental illness, and it was the most devastating experience they had ever experienced. But on the other side of it, Kay Warren launched a mental health ministry, uh, and so they've had conferences and gr- increased greater awareness of the church to help people rescue people that are at risk, that are struggling with depression and mental illness. And lives have been saved out of that, and, and I'm so grateful for their ministry and for the ministry of others, that even though our lives have been shattered by this loss of suicide, it's not the end of the story. We can help others uh, along the way. And your mother, how is she doing? She's doing okay. Uh, she's in her mid-70s now, and she's retired. Um, she's got friends and family and church surrounding her, so I, I'm grateful that um, she she is able to spend time with uh, her grandkids, my, my children, um, and and does that in remembrance of my father, that my father never met my children, and I'm and I grieve that still. But my my mother, in his stead, uh, continues on. Well, I thank you so much for sharing with us your experiencing and providing a resource for others who are grieving and those who want to be a comfort to those who are grieving. Uh, again, the title of the book is "Grieving a Suicide: A Loved One's Search for Comfort, Answers, and Hope." InterVarsity Press is the publisher. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. He quotes a prayer from the uh, the Book of Common Prayer that says this, Almighty God, Father of mercies and giver of comfort, deal graciously, we pray, with all who mourn, that casting all their care on you, they may know the consolation of your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And that is our prayer for anyone listening today who is grieving the loss of a loved one, a friend, uh, someone you cared about through suicide. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, there's, um, at least uh, according to a, an editorial in Investors Business Daily, that there's sweet irony in the possibility that Democrats ended up losing to Trump partly because Obama was too soft on Russia. Well, what's the meat behind this story? Well, Politico is reporting, and they make a solid case uh, that uh, by the time 2016 rolled around, Russia was well-practiced in the art of screwing with the Western elections and emboldened to meddle in the U.S. campaign by the president's 
provocative weakness. Well, why was Obama reluctant to stand up to Putin? The question is asked. Was it a simple character flaw or more of a strategic calculation? Well, Politico spoke with more than a dozen current and former officials from across the national security spectrum, including intelligence agencies, the State Department and the Pentagon. And almost all of them said they were aware of Russia's aggressive cyber espionage and disinformation campaigns that predated by several years the 2016 election, especially after the dramatic Russian attempts to hack Ukrainian elections in 2014, but felt that either the White House or key agencies were unwilling to act forcefully to counter the Russian actions. Well, intelligence officials had a list of things that they could never get to uh, the sign off on. One intelligence official said the truth is nobody wanted to, well, I won't put it quite the way they did, make Russia mad. Well, the reports from sources deep inside the Russian government were alarming. One current U.S. official who served under the Obama administration said, we started getting stuff in April, May of 2014 that was extraordinary about the extent of the threat and the cap- the capacities, rather, that Russians uh, were building. Well, the biggest red flag was Russia's attempt to launch a cyber attack on Ukraine as the votes of, in the 2014 presidential election were being tallied. The attack was uh, thwarted by, but it proved, uh, rather, how bold the Kremlin might be willing to be to mess up or mess with the Western a nation's democratic process. Still, says Politico, the White House did little to brush Putin back. The administration still was reluctant to engage in more forceful counterintelligence strategies against the Kremlin, including more aggressively tracking and trailing um, Russian operatives within the United States, according to five of the officials who spoke to Politico. Well, some uh, Obama defenders claim that uh, This was less a matter of White House reluctance than of reluctance down the chain. U.S. intelligence was allegedly eager to respond to Putin, but the State Department and Pentagon were more hesitant as their agencies would bear the brunt of the measures and countermeasures to come. Even after U.S. intelligence concluded in 2016 that Putin was now interfering in America's own presidential campaign, though, the White House still hesitated. So interestingly, it was uh, the State Department under Hillary Clinton that was reluctant. And now Hillary Clinton claims that the uh, the, the Russian meddling in the election was responsible for her failure to be elected. It's uh, again, the irony, if this is uh, accurate, is uh, really quite marked. Uh, after compiling a list of potential retaliatory options in the summer of 2016, including kicking out more than 100 Russian diplomats, one official told Politico the pushback from national security agencies was so great and varied, the NSC official said, that for months nothing was done. Obama's um, Heard this criticism before, including from his own party, about having been too timid toward Russia. Remember the reset button. By summer 2016, his options were bad. If he had exposed Russian operatives or operations against Democrats early in the campaign, Republicans would have howled that he was trying to sabotage Trump by implicitly aligning him with Putin. If Obama had taken the next step and ordered reprisals against Russia for the DNC Podesta operations, the same reaction would have been amplified. Not only was he picking a fight with the Kremlin over some supposed anti-Democrat operations. He was giving Hillary the benefit of a rally around the flag effect, rather, in a new standoff with Russia. If she had won the election, Republicans would have called it dirty pool, a president exploiting his foreign policy power to assist a nominee of his own party. The significance of today's story, though, is how it pushes the timeline back. Obama had ample notice of Russia's increasingly brazen interest in messing with the Western election. If he had been uh, bolder in punishing Putin sooner for it, Russia might never have dared to interfere in our own election last year. But there's a strategic element uh, as well, of course. 
Right. Russia could have made all sorts of trouble internationally for a lame duck president who was uh, focused on brokering a nuclear deal with Iran. Moscow could have escalated uh, in Syria, which is it eventually did. It could have made a rash move on Eastern Europe, calling Obama's bluff on NATO. And most importantly, it could have tried to um, uh, wreck the fledgling Iran deal. Now, Obama would have had a freer hand to deal harshly with Putin if he had abandoned his dream of some major diplomatic step with Iran that might eventually lead to detente. Uh, with the United States. He had his heart set on that as his major foreign policy achievement, uh, and he was unwilling to do anything that might jeopardize Russian cooperation in it. The result, Putin and Iran have an increasingly strong hold on Syria. The U.S. now has a president whose commitment to NATO is shakier than any of his predecessors, and Trump looks set to uh, tear up the Iran deal sooner rather than later, undoing Obama's work and setting the two countries on a path to confrontation, which it's been on for decades. That's an awfully steep price to pay for a nuclear agreement that was temporary by design and is apt to end up being much shorter term than Obama anticipated. You want to know how you got Trump? As conservatives like to say to liberals, Obama's passivity on Russia is part of it. And you can read more about that um, at uh, Politico that did the analysis, sort of an interesting bit of insight. I know some people listening might read into the timing of this next story because Uh, I didn't lead with it, as I I probably should have, because that's the major story. Well, I mentioned at the top of the program that I'm I'm really quite struck by how it seems to me, to some degree, public opinion is being manipulated, or at least public focus is being manipulated, uh, to the exclusion of a broader conversation that needs to take place around issues that are tormenting our country at this time. Uh, So I wanted to bring up um, Charlottesville at this point because I think that's where it made sense. Jarrett Stepman, writing for the Daily Signal, actually went to Charlottesville and was there during the protests and writes about what he saw. And I wanted to share that perspective because I think it tells us something uh, not just about the, the groups that descended on Charlottesville for the demonstration that took place last Saturday, but about Charlottesville itself. Uh, Jarrett Stepman uh, writes this. I picked uh, and let me uh, just take a quick um, look here to. Um, well, I guess it doesn't give me his uh, his bio. But anyway, I picked quite a time to go on a weekend trip to Charlottesville. He writes what was supposed to be a nice getaway with my wife turned into a journey through the eye of a national media storm. On Saturday, clashes between Unite the Right protesters and anti-fascist counter protesters at the foot of General Robert E. Lee's statue, which the city council had voted to remove from a local park turned violent. One woman, as you know, was killed when an Ohio man allegedly associated with the white nationalist marchers rammed his car through a wave of people. He's been charged with second-degree murder. The clash between Nazis and leftists in the street was an ugly and surreal scene one would associate with 1930s Germany, not a sleepy American town in the heart of central Virginia. And then this is what he writes about the city, the country, uh, and the shock that has uh, fall, uh, that has followed. The attitude of people around Charlottesville, he writes, the silent majority deserves to be noted. They were almost universally upset, blindsided, and resentful that these groups showed up in their community to drag down its reputation and fight their ideological proxy wars. Um, uh, Albemarle County, which includes Charlottesville and a few other small towns, is deeply blue in its most populated centers around the University of Virginia and dark red on the outskirts. It's politically purple. Yet everywhere I went, the attitude toward the protest was similar. As a a thunderstorm rolled in on Saturday evening, a waitress at a restaurant I ate at said, 
Let's hope this washes the day away. A local gas station attendant told my wife, these people from out of town, Nazis, Black Lives Matter, they're all hate groups to me. In the aftermath of the events, most townsfolk walking in the Charlottesville downtown area appeared stunned and shaken. The overall feeling in the area was resentment, certainly not sympathy for any of the groups involved. It would be a mistake to blow the events in Charlottesville too far out of the proportion by linking either side to a mainstream political movement. This is an important element here. Let me repeat. He writes, it would be a mistake to blow the events of Charlottesville too far out of proportion by linking either side to a mainstream political movement. In the grand scheme of things, it was a small-scale clash between groups who clearly represent an extreme minority in this country. Even calling the gathering of a couple of hundreds pe- hundred people a movement would be a stretch. The overwhelming media attention given to these fascists, racist groups, even before violence took place, served as a conduit for the views of these handful of people. The media's role in blowing this event out of proportion is lamentable and predictable, but it doesn't excuse what took place. What the event does demonstrate is the looming danger of identity politics run amok. This is what is in store if we are consumed by the tribal politics that have destroyed so many other countries. In June, I wrote about why I think politically incorrect historical monuments, even Confederate ones like the Lee statue in Charlottesville, uh, should stay. He goes on to write, at the time, I wrote, in our iconoclast effort to erase the past, we rob ourselves of knowing the men who forged our national identity and the events that made us who we are. This nation of almost incomprehensible wealth, power and prosperity was created by the decision of men like Lincoln and Lee, too. Let me just uh, interject here. One of the reasons these monuments have incited such um, uh, such strong feelings today is they have been co-opted by the very racist groups uh, that were in Charlottesville over the weekend. It's not the, the monument itself. It's the co-opting of those figures and those monuments that are used by these racist groups that is fomented such a strong reaction by many. Returning to what he writes about his um, his view from Charlottesville. He writes, the zeal, uh, the zealous march to obliterate America's past, even parts we dislike, will leave us a diminished civilization. Though many have now jumped to conclude that the events in Charlottesville show the need to give in to the desire of people to tear down statues, this will only serve to strengthen and embolden the radicals on both sides to step up their efforts to plunge the nation into constant social unrest and civil war. In a sense, the alt-right and leftist agitators want the same thing. They both seek to redefine the battle over American history in racial and tribal terms in direct opposition to the most basic ideas of our national existence. Such was the case in this unsightly scene in front of the Charlottesville Lee statue. The real individuals whom these statues represent simply ceased to matter. It was telling that a counter-protest erupted in Washington, D.C. in front of an Albert Pike memorial. Pike has been a Confederate general, but the memorial itself was simply dedicated to his work as a Freemason and not his military career. The fact was irrelevant. Only the war over identity mattered. Pike must be plucked out and purged. In a country of 320 million people of stunningly diverse ethnic backgrounds and philosophies, this is a fire bell in the night for the complete cultural disintegration. The end result will be uglier than the already sickening events that took place this weekend. The Federalist uh, publisher Ben uh, Domenech rightly noted what this means for the direction of the country. It is the open conflict of a nation at war with itself over its own character. This war will end badly no matter how it plays out. And the way this story ends is in uh, demolishing Thomas Jefferson's Monticello brick by brick. 
and so many others. There is no arc of history bending perpetually on its own toward justice. History is instead a series of twists and turns influenced by cultural and social forces as well as individuals and communities. America has never been a perfect nation. It has benefited from great ideas advanced by imperfect men and almost miraculously formed a great and good national community out of widely disparate elements. This history is worth remembering and even celebrating. It shouldn't be buried because a few evil men have twisted it to serve their causes, nor should it be used to attack and haunt the living. As the late 19th century poet Henry Van Dyke writes, or rather wrote, I know what that Europe's wonderful yet sometimes uh, something seems to lack. The past is too much with her and the people looking back. But the glory of the present is to make our future free. We love our land for what she is and what she is to be. This is the spirit of our country, he goes on to write, and it won't change because a few thugs wish to turn our most fundamental principles on their head. We have a duty to repudiate them through strong dedication to the principles that have made our country great. And this is, again, Jared Stepman, who uh, happened to be in Charlottesville during the events of the weekend. Now, one of the things that happened earlier today was that the president decried uh, what he called the alt-left in Charlottesville, saying, do they have any uh, semblance of guilt? And we'll share what he had to say in just a few moments, but do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 24 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the media and many others were outraged when the president spoke once again today on the subject of Charlottesville and the so-called alt-left. Do they have any semblance of guilt? The president asked. Well, he was responding to criticism that he failed to confirm white, uh, rather condemn white supremacist groups forcefully enough after the Charlottesville event uh, the day after. Uh, And then on Tuesday, he called out alt-left protesters for their actions the same day, asking, do they have uh, any semblance of guilt. Well, the defiant statements came during a wide-ranging Q&A with the president at Trump Tower in New York a day after he tried to put the issue to rest with a statement condemning white supremacists as repugnant. Well, uh, President Trump started by defending his initial statement responding to the weekend violence in Charlottesville. And while he was criticized for blaming violence on many sides, he said he wanted to make sure he knew the facts before explicitly calling out white supremacists. Well, this was a departure from what we've seen before, so it made that ring a bit hollow. He went on to say, I wanted to make sure, unlike most politicians, that what I said was correct. He told reporters after an announcement on uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, not make a quick statement. The statement I made on Saturday, the first statement was a fine statement, but uh, you don't make statements uh, that direct unless you know the facts, end quote. Uh, Trump soon went on to criticize the alt-left for their role in stoking unrest over the weekend, claiming there's blame on both sides. You had a group on the other side uh, that came charging in without a permit, and they were very, very violent, he said, asked if he was comparing the alt-left to neo-Nazis. Trump said not all those people were neo-Nazis, and he made the point that there were some people there who supported the monument but weren't a part of the larger group. Now, that's a difficult case to make, given the fact that it was um, a, a white supremacist rally was being held under that guise, but it's possible that there were some there for other reasons. On Saturday, the president delivered a statement, as you know, that was highly criticized. On Monday, he delivered another statement. And then today, 
uh, still a third. After facing criticism, including from a number of people in his own party, for that response, the president specifically condemned white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and others. Racism is evil, he said, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Well, Trump on Tuesday, he weighed in. Uh, renewed the push to take down civil uh, the uh, Civil War statutes across the country, alluding to those efforts. The president said this week it's Robert E. Lee. I wonder if it's George Washington next week and if it's Thomas Jefferson the week after. Where does it stop? Well, that was the conversation that took place today. And, of course, everyone is uh, uh, is upset about that again today. And this is just going to continue and continue. My guess is if we were to remove all the monuments there, would they'd want to div up, div up the uh, graves of the individuals uh, who the monuments uh, were for. I'm not sure where it ends or how constructive this back and forth is. As I mentioned before, I'm more concerned about what we do about it rather than what's being said about it. We did learn today that authorities in the nation's capital, they're searching for a vandal uh, after the Lincoln Memorial was spray painted with explicit uh, graffiti earlier today. The National Park Service says it was working to remove the graffiti after it was discovered at about 4.30 a.m. this morning. Um, it was done in red spray paint on a, a column of appeared to say words that cannot be repeated um, on the radio, but it condemned and repudiated law in general. Um, Silver spray paint was also found on the Smithsonian um, uh, wayfinding sign on Constitution Avenue, according to Park Service. That monument preservation crew started cleaning up the tagged area uh, with this um, architectural paint stripper that's uh, safe to use on historical stone, and that will be done on the Washington Monument as well. Uh, so the back and forth will continue and we can spend all of our time focusing on brick and mortar and uh, plaster without necessarily addressing the core issues of what's at stake here in this constitutional republic. Meanwhile, in Dallas, Texas, the debate about Confederate statutes there intensified as a group made up of predominantly African-Americans called for the monuments there to remain standing. Several cities across America have now started to remove or talk about removing Confederate markers shortly after the events on Saturday. Former city council member Sandra Crenshaw, she thinks removing the statue won't help. She says, I'm not intimidated by Robert E. Lee's statue. I'm not intimidated by it. It doesn't scare me. We don't want America to think that all African-Americans are supportive of this. She, along with some Buffalo soldier historians and sons of Confederate veterans, are coming together to help protect the Confederate markers from toppling over uh, in Dallas, they feel the monuments like the Freedom Cemetery, Freedmen's Cemetery tell an important story and help heal racial wounds. Some people think that by taking a statue down that's going to erase racism, uh, Crenshaw, who's African-American, said, misguided. City Council member Philip Kingston disagrees. What we don't do is leave up a monument that celebrates the very idea that some of us are not equal to the others. So the back and forth in Dallas, you've got African-Americans who believe the monument should remain in place because it tells a story um, and it should tell the story perhaps more fully so that it's understood in its context. And then you have others who suggest that the monument itself representing individuals who uh, oppose the idea of uh, free uh, blacks during the Civil War period. So uh, monuments and statues is not the place to start, although maybe removing them, communities can decide for themselves. But there's a much larger, deeper conversation that has to be had if we're going to resolve the issues that lay behind, again, the uh, plaster, the marble um, that these statues represent. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Department of Justice, they're looking for personal information on visitors to an anti-Trump website connected to destructive Inauguration Day protests. And that's sparking a court fight with the hosting service that says the request violates privacy protections. Well, Justice has uh, obtained a search warrant ordering web hosting service DreamHost to assist law enforcement and produce this electronic data. Well, the department wants data including IP addresses, names, and other personal information pertaining to visitors to the website. It's disruptj20.org, and that was for the inauguration. They helped organize the political protests against the Trump administration. More than 200 people were charged after protesters broke windows, set fire to a limousine on Trump's inauguration day on the 20th of January. Protesters say the website disruptj20 Dot org was used for planning the disturbances. Well, DreamHost, however, says the warrant seeks information on the 1.3 million visitors to the site, and other information is sweeping and violates the Constitution and a federal privacy law. Well, in its own filing, the company said the warrant requires them to turn over every piece of information it has about every visitor to a website expressing political views concerning the current administration, including the IP address for the visitor, the website pages viewed by the visitor, even a detailed description of software running in the visitor's computer. In essence, the search warrant not only aims to identify the political dissidents of the current administration, but attempts to identify and understand what content each of these dissidents viewed on the website. Well, DreamHost argues the search warrant cannot survive scrutiny considering First Amendment protections. Well, the government uh, argues that the website was used in the development, planning, advertisement and organizing of a violent riot that occurred in Washington, D.C., the 20th of January, 2017. A hearing is scheduled for Friday. We'll find out what the court has to say about the extent to which an administration can request information on 1.3 million people uh, to try to identify 200 and their role in uh, in the events of Inauguration Day. Well, the Internal Revenue Service has rehired some 213 employees who ducked taxes, falsified documents, were convicted of theft or made unauthorized use of taxpayer data. This is according to the Inspector General for the Internal Revenue Service. I wonder if you and I embezzled funds, Chris, here at uh, Salem Media, if they would rehire us after a period of time. <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably not going to happen. If we were to steal equipment, for example, or um, uh, personal information from advertisers, do you think we would be rehired? Yeah, I'm thinking probably not. But work for the Internal Revenue Service and at least for 213 who um, did similar things. Uh, They've been rehired Well, the Office of Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration that also first discovered the IRS targeting conservative groups in 2013, examined the agency's hiring from January 2015 to March of 2016. Uh, For these 15 months, the IRS official in charge was Commissioner John Koskinen, an appointee from the previous administration. House Republicans for months sought to impeach Koskinen for obstructing a congressional probe into the agency's targeting of the applications for taxes exempt status made by nonprofit Tea Party and conservative groups. Given the substantial threat of identity theft and the magnitude of sensitive information that the IRS holds, hiring employees of high integrity is essential to maintaining public trust in tax administration and safeguarding taxpayer information, the Inspector General's report says. He went on to say, and I'm quoting, four of the more than 200 employees had been terminated or um, uh, had resigned 
uh, for willful failure to properly file their federal uh, tax returns, four separated from the agency while under investigation for unauthorized access to taxpayer information. Now, they were under investigation. Some perhaps were exonerated. 86 separated while under investigation for absences and leave, workplace disruption or failure to follow instructions. This includes positions with access to sensitive taxpayer information, such as contact representatives. Now, we don't know the outcome of those investigations. Perhaps that's an explanation as to why these were uh, returning uh, for employment. But the inspector general was not so uh, so sure of that. As a political appointee in the executive branch, Koskinen doesn't have the civil service protections that career government employees do. President Trump could order his firing at will. The inspector general released the report on the 24th of uh, July, asked about uh, that on Thursday. An IRS spokesman referred the Daily Signal to a letter to the inspector general from E. Faith Bell, the agency's acting human capital officer. To the extent possible by law, she wrote on the letter June 28th, the IRS will take all steps allowable to prevent the rehiring of former employees with conduct and performance issues. Bell added that she had commissioned a team to implement corrective actions. This team will ensure existing hiring practices and policies are updated to reflect our use of IRS employment data, specifically any misconduct and performance prior to making a tentative offer of new employment to a former IRS employee. While the wealth of protections for federal employees under the civil service and union agreements makes my head hurt, Grover Norquist, who's president of the of Americans for Tax Reform, The average American is not happy with the way the IRS behaves on a good day, Norquist went on to say. It's disappointing that they are rehiring people who were fired for very bad behavior. Well, Koskinen should go, Norquist went on to say, and the sooner the better to avoid another political controversy similar to Trump ousting James Comey as FBI director. All Koskinen would have to do is say something publicly about Trump taxes and then Trump can't fire him. Uh, Given the outrageous way he has behaved, why not move much sooner, Norquist went on to say. And, of course, he's not a part of the administration. Uh, President Obama named Koskinen to the job in 2013, directing him to clean up the targeting scandal. But Republicans on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee said he obstructed their probe and should be impeached. I don't know why President Trump hasn't fired John Koskinen since there is no evidence the agency is mismanaged or rather is more evidence as Peter Flaherty. He's the president of the National Legal and Policy uh, Center, which is a conservative government watchdog group. Koskinen is very typical Washington creature and very at home in the swamp. Flaherty went on to say, quoting the phrase often used by the the, uh, president as a candidate and as uh, now president. It's a puzzle to me why Trump hasn't acted, he went on to say. Well, the IRS has um, already had one of the worst reputations and the most power of any federal agency. Against the backdrop of fear that the IRS has been used for political purposes, now you may have people who can't, uh, can't be trusted with sensitive personal information, he says. Well, the White House twice referred comment on Koskinen to the Treasury Department, which didn't respond to a request for comment. The IRS rehired 2,000 former employees from 2015 through 2016. The Inspector General's report says many were seasonal employees and about 10 percent were problematic. IRS officials who make hiring decisions don't have access to the applicant's employment history with the agency and 27 failed to uh, disclose on paperwork that they had been terminated, the report found. 
That's a problem. Instances of such non-disclosure are supposed uh, supposed to be referred to the Independent Office of Personnel Management, which the report says the IRS didn't do. Well, the inspector general issued a report in December of 2014 that found 824 questionable rehires from 2010 to 2013. Of those, 824, a total of 60 seasonable employees were rehired in 2015, despite substantiated um, uh, uh, conduct and performance issues, according to the new report. So in addition to challenges as to whether or not the uh, agency has functioned according to its charter, apparently now they're charging that some of the employees who have been rehired should not have been. What a mess. What a uh, what a mess. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll let you know that if you got your Eclipse glasses from Amazon, there's a problem. Uh, they've recalled their glasses, and uh, there's a bit of a panic, so we'll t- <laughs> we'll tell you uh, what to do. The thing is coming, you know, on August the 21st. I've, I've heard so much about it, and there's so much hype about it, I'm almost kind of ho-hum about it actually arriving. I know it's a, a magnificent thing, but uh, we'll talk in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Amazon has issued a recall. It's a widespread recall for solar eclipse glasses. It was early Saturday morning, one week before the eclipse. Uh, that move stunned some sellers who say their glasses are verified safe, but apparently not so much. Um, millions of people are planning to watch the total solar eclipse. I'm not sure now I'm even going <laughs> to try. We were not in the uh, the, what is it, the... Path of totality. Um, Anyway, they're planning elaborate vacations in the path of totality. They're ordering special glasses to let uh, viewers look at the sun without damaging their eyes. More than a million people are expected to travel here in Oregon to to see the eclipse. It starts its journey uh, during the first total eclipse to cut through the continental U.S. for the uh, from the west to the coast. Uh, East Coast since 1918. But many are now scrambling to find new eclipse glasses. Amazon issued this um, widespread recall uh, starting early Saturday uh, with reports that they are counterfeit. Uh, Retailers who say they sell verified NASA-approved eclipse glasses are also caught in the recall, losing record profits with one week to go before the astronomical event. Huh. So I I don't know how to tell. They they say they're NASA-approved. But apparently they're counterfeit. So I don't know what you you know what you get at Fred Meyer when you buy them. It says they're approved, and now anyway, uh, KGW said that there are trustworthy eclipse glasses out there, but they're going fast. Uh, who knows what they'll say in a week from now or three days from now? But with less than a week until the solar eclipse, time is running out to get a pair of safe eclipse viewing glasses doctors say looking at the sun without them could permanently damage your eyes the only exception is that uh, if you are looking at the eclipse during the totality which we won't get here but you you know the the drill by now well after the amazon recall on so many of their uh, eclipse glasses people in the portland area were scrambling to find safe glasses to view the eclipse the oregon museum of science and industry they stocked about 15,000 pair so that's a reliable place apparently and by monday afternoon they had sold almost all of them today's tuesday by the way 15,000 um 
OMSI glasses uh, meet safety requirements set by the International Safety Organization, unlike a lot of counterfeit glasses um, that are being sold online. We're finding that people who have found the counterfeits put them on and the sun is way too bright, says OMSI's Director of Space Science Education. They suggest looking for the ISO label on the glasses, earpiece, and an approved manufacturer's name above the nose. He says it's important to avoid third-party sellers like websites and street vendors. He also suggested a way to test the glasses for safety. Put them on. Look at a light bulb. If you can only see the filament uh, and not uh, the other parts of the bulb, chances are the glasses are safe. So put them on. Look at a light bulb. If you can only see the filament, you're probably fine. Well, the Space Science Institute donated two million pair of safe solar eclipse glasses to libraries across the country, including those here in Multnomah County. Um, my guess is you're not going to find many of those now, although I'm, I'm not sure of that. We're lucky to have these, says the director of communications for Multnomah County Library. They're free to anyone who comes into the library while supplies last, and unfortunately most of them are gone already. So I don't even know why they're being mentioned, but um, there are a handful left in Multnomah County libraries. Anything to get people to come to the library, I suppose, is worth having some eye clinics such as eyes on you in downtown portland have small supplies of safe eclipse glasses um they have they had about 20 pair uh that they purchased from the state optim um optometric physicians fred meyer was selling certified safe eclipse glasses but some employees said all glasses sold out in the portland metro area following the amazon recall uh, doctors say people planning to look at the sun through the through binoculars, a camera or telescope will need eclipse specific solar filters to protect their eyes. I don't think that's going to make the difference. Uh, anytime you're using extra optic to uh, in front of your eyes to view an eclipse, there needs to be separate device. They say. I'm sorry to to bother you. I have one question, one small one. So if you if I want to test my glasses by looking at it. Through I don't I don't have any light bulbs that actually have filaments anymore. All I have are compact CFLs and LEDs, and so now I have to go to the hardware store and get like a halogen bulb or something. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I'm I've been staring I'll... at the sun with these glasses for the past couple of days too. I know I'm not how many fingers to... am I holding up? <laughs> Four, five, six, oh dear, oh seven, dear. seven fingers. Yeah, um, and then there's this. Um, Story comes out of Olympia, Washington. Transportation officials in both Oregon and Washington have a message for the region's drivers. However bad you think traffic is going to be during next Monday's total solar eclipse, depending on where you are, it's probably going to be worse than you imagine. A lot worse. That's a quote. How reassuring is that? Now, it, it comes, what, around nine, ten o'clock? So it's in the morning. It's during commute time or just after commute time. Uh, 1021 in Madras, 1018 in Salem, Baker City, 1025. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know what to think. Uh, waking up early to leave the Seattle area to head south the morning of the eclipse is not a good idea, says the Washington State Department of Transportation, the Southwest Region Communications Manager. The Oregon Department of Transportation expects the eclipse to be the biggest traffic event in the state's history. And again, we're hearing that one million number again. We're drawing about a million people to the zone of totality to view the event. 
the zone of totality, by the way, stretches from Salem at 1018 a.m. to Madras, 1021 a.m. to Baker City at 1025 a.m. So little chance of there being as much of a problem here where we are. But while just um, a 60 to 70 mile wide swath in central Oregon is within the path of totality, Washington and Oregon officials say that significant backups are expected throughout both states, both before and after the short event ends with potentially hundreds of thousands of people clogging the roadways as they try to drive home or head to airports. Wow. And this lasts, what, just a couple minutes. Washington Department of Transportation says a typical morning commute between Vancouver, Washington into Portland backs up for miles. The eclipse will add thousands of cars to that just on Interstate 5. Uh, The word from our friends at the Oregon Department of Transportation, the Washingtonians say, um, folks making the trip uh, um, should arrive early, stay put and leave late. Vancouver, Washington hotels are sold out Sunday night. Uh, But they're also 80 percent booked on Monday night, suggesting many people will stay past the eclipse, according to uh, Washington. They expect major thoroughfares into Oregon will uh, slow going, um, coming and going. Um, Interstate 5, Interstate 82, uh, State Route 14, that's uh, Columbia River Gorge, U.S. 197, Interstate 205, Clark uh, Clark County to Portland, uh, and um, many, many others. Well, there you have it. The eclipse of 2017. I want to thank Chris Williams for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing. Tomorrow we're going to talk with uh, Becky Harling. She's the author of How to Listen So People Will Talk, Building Stronger Communication and Deeper Connections. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.